So we started it in the very early years of Ananda, uh, probably the first year, in fact. And we've had it every year since then. So we're this is probably the 48th year for Spiritual Renewal Week. And two more years, and we'll be in the temple uh, for, for our classes. So we want to welcome all of you who are joining us here and also all of those who are joining us online. In the last few years, it has become a fact of life that many more people watch through the Internet than are able to come live. So I don't know what we have, 300 or 400 people sitting here. We will end up with having 800 or 1,000 people also watching online. So welcome to all of you, too. I also want to mention, speaking of the new temple, that we have a model of it right up here on the stage. And just to kind of affirm that it's going to be landing right up there in that meadow. Not affirm, it will be. It's it's more than affirmation. And if you want to come up any time after, not during class, but (laughs) after class and just sort of look at the beauty of it, please feel free to do so. And also I want to welcome those who have come uh, if we have people here from all of our communities in America, we have a big group from uh, with Kavita and her friends from New Zealand. We have people from India, from Europe. So it's really magnificent and uh, world brotherhood in action. So thank you all for joining us. And oh, hello. <laughs> I just see some friends from New Zealand who we haven't seen for many years, Athol and... Yes, very nice to see you. So, um, yeah, let's clap for all the people who came. Oh, and I see a friend from Singapore. No, 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 the man sitting in front of you, Johan. Philippines, Philippines. yes, thank you, thank you. And Joseph. From Seattle. <laughs> okay. Well, God bless you all, and let's let's stand and start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Great Masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna. Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Great Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. Bless us by uplifting our consciousness, by renewing our spirit. Help us deepen our yearning to merge with Thee and to serve Thee. Om. Peace. Amen. Please be seated. We've learned that this can be thirsty work. 
So the theme of this week's entire series is transforming our consciousness through meditation. And I want to really emphasize that the theme of transforming our consciousness is the only theme that is valid. You know, we live in a very turbulent world right now, and especially with political differences and polarities happening and so many little conflicts, not necessarily little, so many armed conflicts going on around the world. It is very easy for the mind to get drawn out into thinking that things outside of ourselves are going to be what determines our happiness or even determines our state of consciousness and our spiritual state. But I want to emphasize as clearly as possible, it is all about consciousness. Everything is about consciousness. Even that which seems to be happening outside of us is not really happening in the way that we think that it is. It's happening in the way that a dream is carried on. And in our dream state at night, we enter into a world that has seeming reality, has characters, has drama, has time, has space, has all of that. And yet it's self-evident when we wake up in the morning, not while we're in the dream, because in the dream, all of those parameters seem real. When we wake up in the morning, it's self-evident that it was all about consciousness. And so it is we're in the midst of God's dream, and it is all about consciousness. And so our happiness, Master said that all inner fulfillment comes from raising our level of consciousness. So the only thing that is really going on is us going through what we're going through in order to learn from that, in order to expand our consciousness and to raise our consciousness. We have some things, well, as the old joke would say, we, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that the world is not going to help us in that quest for consciousness. Most of you are familiar with the system of the yugas. So we start at a high point at the very height of Satya Yuga. Then we descend to the low point at the very bottom of Kali Yuga, in between descending Kali Yuga and ascending Kali Yuga. That time period, Sri Yukteswar said, was 499 AD. Then we begin a climb again up to Satya Yuga. Now, Satya Yuga, if we talk about it in terms of consciousness, and here especially world consciousness, Satya Yuga can be compared to very high consciousness, that of a, a, a person who is either enlightened or sees that the only thing that they're interested in, the only work that they have, the only way that they relate is by 
attempting to take the last few steps to enlightenment and then to extend that state of consciousness into everything that they do. And so in terms of conflict, there's a story that Swami told us <clears throat> about at the height of of Satya Yuga, the time of Ram and his kingdom of Ayodhya, which was ideally uh, an ideal kingdom. And he sent out his counselors to the various aspects, the various territories that he had, the districts of his realm, and asked the counselors to report on how things were going. And they <clears throat> they came back. They all reported, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, everything is harmonious. But one of the counselors said, at the end of his report about how beautiful it was, he said, you know, there was a strange thing that happened. In one of the far-flung districts, just as I was leaving, I heard a fishmonger and his wife having an argument. And Ram paused a moment. And he said, that's the beginning of my realm. Of the end, that's the beginning of the end of my realm, the beginning of the end of Satya Yuga, where there can be such disharmony of consciousness that two people would argue. That's the beginning of the end. Now, you look at our time, <laughs> and I think the person would go out and come back and report at the end of everything, I saw a very strange thing. I saw a fishmonger and his wife not arguing. I saw some politicians not arguing. I saw some some different countries not in conflict. So we think we're in a whole lot more enlightened age than we are. But because this Gyandev, you're going to enjoy this. For those of you who don't know, Gyandev has a, mass, a, a doctorate in mathematics. Uh, Uma's, uh, our friend Uma, who now serves in Italy, uh, when she heard that he had a doctorate in mathematics, she looked at him kind of awestruck and said, but Why? <laughs> so, at any rate... Because we know where the bottom was, we know where the top was, and we know the year that we're in now, we can figure out how how advanced we are mathematically by simple division. So we are 12.65% of the way up the scale toward enlightenment. For the average lifespan, if we take the average lifespan of 80 years old, that means that the entire planet, the average mental emotional age of the planet is 10 years old. Now, if we think that we're going to fix things, that doesn't apply to people, you know, people are on a planet, but they aren't necessarily of the age that they're in. And so most of us are just a few ticks away from from uh, the end of Satya Yuga. But nonetheless, we find ourselves on a planet where the average emotional and um, maturity level 
is 10 years old, if we think that we're going to fix everything by throwing out one 10-year-old and electing another 10-year-old <laughs> and that we get all tied up in running around and protesting to change the things outside of ourselves, we aren't going to do anything of real help that way. What we can do is try to raise the level of consciousness. And that's why we have this campaign called Be the Change. We're trying to get people all over the world to pledge hours of meditation or of prayer to the upliftment of consciousness and to world peace. And we're trying to get a million hours pledged. And we have people from over 51 countries who are pledging for that. But coming back to the theme, it's all about consciousness. It's not about what is outside of ourselves. Even what seems to be outside of yourself is all interpreted inside your own brain, inside your own consciousness. You might look and think that the lake is out there, that you're seeing the lake out there, but what you're seeing is energy in the form of photons that hit your eye and stimulate nerves that send signals inside your brain and your brain is interpreting that. So what you perceive as being outside is actually happening inside. It's all in consciousness. But God set it up, you know. He's a master, master magician. And he set it up so that we're completely fooled by the show outside, or nearly completely fooled, and we have to move against that stream in order to realize that everything's going on inside of ourselves. And it goes way beyond from the individual realizing it's going on inside of ourselves to as we ascend through layers of ascending consciousness, what we eventually realize is that there is no outside. There is no inside. There's only, there's no time. There's no space. There's only consciousness, only consciousness. Ananda Moima, I've been reading a wonderful book lately called Mother Reveals Herself, and it's about the early years of Ananda Moima. And in that, she talks more about what it's like to be in the state of consciousness that she was in, which was in vast, complete union with God and complete samadhi, basically all of the time. But she says, in that state, there is only one, there is only that. And even the thought that there could be something other than that, even, even that thought, is not possible to arise in your mind while you're in that state. So even the thought that there could be a lake cannot arise in the highest state because all that you would see in that highest state is various forms of the one consciousness. And that's all the perception is. So that's where we're headed. And that's what we're trying to get to but the question comes then, how do we get there? Because 
I don't know about the rest of you. I am not, at my level, able to hold the state of consciousness that it perceives that all of it is just one consciousness of God. I'm able to hold that intellectually. I'm able to hold on to that intellectual concept. I forget it most of the time, but I can come back and I can, oh yes, if it's all one God, then therefore everything that seems to be different must be the one in the, you know, you go through that rational process and you come to the rational conclusion that everything is one. But that's far different from having the actual experience of union. It's that experience that we're after. And that experience comes to us through meditation primarily. Because meditation is the science of stilling the mind and stilling the emotions, of shutting off the sense telephones which draw the mind into thinking things are outside, of shutting that off and being completely focused. Master said, meditation is deep concentration on God or on one of the aspects of God, light, sound, love, joy, etc. So that deep, deep concentration, the really deep concentration is only possible after the energy has been withdrawn deeply withdrawn, and the sense telephones that draw us outward are shut off, so then there isn't any photon hitting the eyes. There isn't any message coming in through the through the optic nerve and into the brain. It's just because our energy in, is withdrawn, then we see that everything is in a realm of consciousness. And so the deeper we can go into meditation, the deeper we can come into the actual realization that everything is an expansion of the one consciousness. And that one consciousness has been described as Satchitananda, existent, ever-existing, ever-conscious, and Master said, ever-new bliss. And so it's important that we understand that the end of the road is of deep, deep bliss, deep, deep integration. There's a wonderful book called Dying to Be Me by a woman named Anita Morjani. And uh, the reason it came to mind is recently one of our members uh, sent us a YouTube video of an interview that this woman, Anita, did on, I think, Malaysian television. Anyway, it was a half-hour interview. But her story is very remarkable, but I'll get to the remarkable part that applies to us in just a moment. But her story was that she contracted cancer. That cancer spread throughout her body, was everywhere, in the organs, in the bones, everywhere. She had lost all all of her weight. She was less than 80 pounds. She was in the hospital in a coma, and they told the family that she had only hours to live. And in that coma, she exited her body 
and she had an experience in the world that will come after we die when we leave the confines of the physical space and of the space that's contained by the senses. When we leave those confines, we're going to go into a realm of consciousness. So this interviewer said, did you see God? What did God look like? And she said, there's no form in that realm. It's not like God takes on a form. It's all pure consciousness. But here's the point that's important for us. She said that in that state, there was so much love and so much acceptance, there was nothing else, that that was complete. And in that blissful state, that bliss was complete and it fulfilled her. And then she saw in retrospect that her life had been all about trying to do things that she did not want to do in order to please others. And she saw no escape from that life, and therefore she contracted cancer as a, as a means out of, out of that dilemma. And she saw very clearly that her cancer was a result of her state of consciousness. And then she was told that she needed to return, and she fought it. She didn't want to go into that cancer-ridden body again, that life that she was leading. But she was told that she needed to return, but that she could change things. And so she came back. Within five days, she was up out of bed. No sign of cancer left whatsoever. She was up out of bed, walking around. There's complete recovery and no sign of cancer these many years later. So... When I say it's all about consciousness, see, it's all about consciousness. It's our consciousness that creates the conditions that we live in. It's our consciousness that creates the, the mass consciousness, creates the conditions of mass environment that we live in at this time. But if we want to make changes then the changes are not outside of ourself and most especially the changes that are needed is not by changing something that we perceive or someone that we perceive as outside of ourself. It's not your, your difficulties that you're dealing with are not imposed upon you by someone else. But if you're not ready to work on yourself yet, you're going to find somebody to blame for causing you what you yourself are causing. And so you're going to, to avoid doing your, your homework by, by screaming and shouting about how terrible the teacher is and how you can't possibly do your homework, because all the other children, they make noise when you're trying to whatever. So we have to begin to be the change in ourselves that we want to see. And we have to, if we can, magnetically, by our example, see the other aspect of consciousness is that it's magnetic. It, consciousness thoughts 
are just as real. They're, in fact, more real than the physical things that we do. And so they have mag- they have energy. Energy creates magnetism. Thoughts, lifted consciousness, create a circle of magnetism around those who hold it so that they uplift the consciousness of those around. That's what Be the Change is about. Change ourselves, we change the world. Don't change ourselves, and we don't change the world. It's just really that simple. So what are some of the movements of consciousness that we're trying to move toward? You know, Master did something that he called his psychological chart to help us understand the kind of progression of consciousness. And this is before we get into deep meditation. This is just consciousness, uh, a consciousness level and what the resulting thoughts and attitudes and activities in the world uh, of how we behave as a result of our level of consciousness. And so he took the four levels that were from the caste or, as Swamiji put them, the different um, kind of uh, specific gravities. And so Swamiji called them the highest truth-sharing level, the next truth-seeking level, the next self-centered level, and the final one he called morally handicapped level. No, I'm not making a political statement. So, here's, here's how we would relate from those different levels to um, our possessions, to having money, to security issues. At the morally handicapped level, that would be dependent through want of capacity, has a stealing propensity, has a begging nature, and is covetous. At the self-centered level, it's selfish, overly fond of dress and display, crafty, overly clever, but has initiative. At the truth-seeking level, it's executive, ambitious, capable of initiative, having the power of accommodation, adaptability, and is tenacious. And at the truth-sharing level, non-attached, benevolent toward needy, philanthropic tendency, and a reforming spirit. And I'll do just one other. This is how we relate to authority. at the And specifically for us, this is how we relate to spiritual authority, how we relate to the, to the guru. And I'm using these four levels, but for all of us, we have little pockets of the lowest level. And we probably have, for most of us here, a big terrain of the highest level. But nonetheless, it's helpful to understand. So how we relate to authority or to guidance from authority especially. At the lowest morally handicapped, we get strong feelings of obstinacy and anger when chastised for faults, but careless when not chastised and only ask to mend our faults. At the next level... We try to please those in authority by half-deceitful, humble gestures, liable to be easily led or influenced. So we would lie about our behavior. We'd try to tell others that we're more than what we are and so on. At the truth-seeking level, we're susceptible to correction if 
appeal to the intellect, feeling, pedigree, or rank. Remind others of their, uh, or reminded of our own or others' past misfortunes. Affection is shown, but we're argumentative while we're being respectful. So that's very much an American temperament. Swami said that when he had to lecture in America, he had to spend the first half of his lecture, less so now, this was when he was beginning, he had to spend the first half of his lecture convincing people that he wasn't a fraud, the next quarter of his lecture convincing people that he had something of value to share, and only the last quarter in sharing it. And because the American temperament was that executive temperament that we would take these truths, but we, they had to be proven to us. So if you have that temperament, you still have a ways to go. And at the highest, acts in accordance with the suggestions of superior minds and has gratitude toward benefactors. So Swami, when he was with Master, he had a lot of doubts, a lot of questions, a lot of show me, prove it to me. But he said that he's quickly developed the attitude that he would have doubts until somebody could prove to him that this came from Master. Then he would accept it, no matter what his doubts were. And that's the attitude that we all need to begin to develop because we want to be guided by higher consciousness, not by lower consciousness. We want to absolutely, completely attune our minds, our feelings, our desires, our actions, everything. We want to attune that to the guru because he represents that vibration of consciousness and the awareness that we're seeking, that we're trying to get to. And so if we're trying to get there, why argue? Why fight that process? So we have to work. And, you know, it's old tendencies, old habits that keep us back. But we have to work at getting away from having things proved to us if they come from the guru. Just throwing ourselves ever more deeply, ever more completely into the light that we see in meditation or into the thought of attunement with the guru because that's the way out. That's the way out of the level of consciousness that that we're stuck at. And so most of what we do, even in meditation, is not the experience of being at the highest level, but it's a refinement of the ego that is going to get us there. The ego is, God, Master put it this way, God is pure consciousness beyond any creation. Then he creates something out of his own consciousness. He creates the world, the universe. And in the universe, there are atoms and electrons and subatomic particles. Every atom, every electron, every subatomic particle is made up of God's consciousness. So at the heart of everything is spiritual consciousness. When we can realize that spirit exists at the heart of every, every speck of creation, that's what's called Christ consciousness. 
and that's a universal that's that's what we're after in the state of samadhi in the state of high consciousness is that realization first in creation and then beyond creation as christ said in the bible none cometh unto the father except through me meaning christ consciousness we have to first achieve christ consciousness to go then beyond creation and so that's where we're trying to go but then when we begin to individualize that take those electrons and atoms and subatomic particles and we take just a little tiny 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 bit of those and we form it into our body and our mind and our personality that's the soul in that body and then if we become attached and deluded that that is the extent of who we are that's the ego and so we're trying to get rid of the delusion and master said that the way that we do that is we work our way back through that process so first we have to get out of the strong delusion of the ego and we have to realize that we're not just this one body this one personality we're the soul that continues to take on bodies and personalities over and over and over again that's what meditation is designed to do because as we meditate and calm ourselves and focus inwardly then we begin to see not the particulars but the principles and the universal aspect and so if we concentrate deeply in meditation the the height of meditation is after we withdraw the energy and withdraw shut off the tele, sense telephones that's when we can really meditate and when we do that we first become completely concentrated master said if we can hold our focus completely for 1 hour we will go into a higher state of consciousness we'll go into you know the expansive consciousness of samadhi or christ consciousness and so we have to first concentrate then we by deep concentration become absorbed and then we expand so if we're concentrated on light at the point between the eyebrows we should try to become so focused on that that we have no other thoughts except observing that light or better yet kind of melting ourselves into that light and if we can do that just for an hour if we can do it for 10 seconds we're doing well i think but our goal should be to do that for an hour if we can hold that we will go into a heightened state of consciousness where we no longer see ourselves as that ego we see ourselves as that light and that light is universal and we are the universal consciousness but that state occurs in deep meditation it doesn't occur by thinking it doesn't occur by any activity that enhances the ego enhances the self enhances the sense of separation all of that works against us it's only through that that deep state that we're that we're trying to get there and these states of consciousness are real there's a subtle world 
around us that we don't perceive, but at higher levels of consciousness, we will perceive. When we go to India, we often meet with a man named Ashok Baba, who was a long, long-term devotee of Ananda Moy Ma. And he told us uh, last time we were there, uh, and it, 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 he has a thick accent, and it was an unfamiliar place name, So, but we have it on tape, I have to listen. But there is a place in India, and Ananda Moy Ma said, go there, there's a big, I think, banyan tree. Meditate under that banyan tree because for many centuries, as many as 10,000 saints have been meditating there in their astral form. And if you go there and meditate there, you will be in that vibration and it will help uplift your consciousness. So we don't know whether there are saints meditating under these trees or not. We don't have yet the level of subtlety of our consciousness because we're still attached to the senses that allows us to perceive that. But as Swami said to, um, as Master said to Swami, when he had played the part of Christ in a tableau, he said, I'd rather be like Christ than play the part of Christ. As Master said, that'll come. That'll come. So it will come. We will get there where we will have those perceptions. But we have to want to get there. If we don't want to get there, then God says, I'll just wait. It's a beautiful drama that I've created. Terrible disasters, great wondrous uh, sense stimulations. Go play. Go play for as long as you want. And we will. So it's only by intensifying our desire to reach the height of consciousness, our own consciousness, not something imposed that that accelerates the process of getting there. Okay, so what helps us get there? Well, I've been talking about meditation. That is the most important thing of all. And then along with that, there are other forms of sadhana that we do, trying to practice the presence of God. In India, many paths teach japa, where you constantly repeat the name of God, or, or, you know, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. You do that thousands of times a day in order to keep the mind because where that name is, there's also the presence of God. Keep the mind focused on that. So various kinds of sadhana that we do. Service is very, very important. Without service, we become self-enclosed. We become selfish. And we don't have ways of easily burning off karma. So service, but service means to do our activity as a purely free gift to God and to help others without any sense whatsoever of what I get back from that. And in that pure service, Master said that the two major ways to get to God are through meditation and through service. That that through that service, if we can do that at the highest level, it uplifts and purifies our consciousness.
And so, so you know, meditation, sadhana of other types, service. The next thing is satsang. To be in the company of others who are seeking that creates a magnetism, a group magnetism that draws the consciousness up. And then finally, and probably for us, the very most important is attunement with the guru. To try to have everything that we do in attunement with the guru. Master said in a prayer, I will try, I will think only perfect thoughts. I will only say words of truth because I know that my thoughts and my speech are seeds planted for the future. So our day should be spent trying to be in tune with Master so that we think only perfect thoughts. Now, Master understands our difficulty. He said, what you do doesn't bother me. I don't care about what you do because we're not going to do this all the time. He says, I don't care about what you do. I care about what you don't do. And so our way out is we're going to make mistakes. That's a given. But if what we don't do to make the effort to try to do these spiritual uplifting thoughts, words, actions, deeds. I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my thought, my reason, will, and activity to the right path in everything. That's what Master said the highest prayer was. So trying to be in tune so that we're guided all the time. And what holds us back? What holds us back from doing that. Well, past karma, because we have not behaved in this way in the past, and therefore we have habits and attitudes and tendencies that resist behaving that way. And so past karma holds us back. But deep meditation, especially Kriya Yoga and service, burns up past karma, and we become freed from that more and more continually freed from that. What's another thing that holds us back? Undue influences, being open, and in fact chasing after influences that pull the mind down. So those influencers, mass media, mass consciousness, the environment that we live in, the people that we associate with, all of those things will influence our consciousness in one direction or another. So if you want to get away from God and play in the world longer, hang out with people who want that. If you want to be free, then try to spend more and more time in the company of people who want that. And that's why Master said we need to create these World Brotherhood colonies, these communities, and why we need to have them all over as we're doing, and why in later Dwapara Yuga this would become the lifestyle of Dwapara Yuga, these little uplifted uh, communities, because environment is stronger than the individual willpower. So those basically are the things that pull our consciousness down 
And that and resisting those tendencies is our job. So just in conclusion, it's all about our consciousness. We've been given the tools, the Savior, the teacher, the magnetism, the satsang, the, the teachings. We've been given it all. And our job is just to do the best that we can to do those things that will raise our consciousness and share with others everything that we receive because we are a part of all that is. The more we do that with intensity and with persistence, intensity plus persistence will bring us to our goal. So that's our job, our work, and it's beautiful to gather together in a week like this that helps in that process. Think of what the world would be like if throughout the world this week everybody were gathered together in a spiritual renewal week. Not here. <laughs> Not eight billion people here. But, but little groupings to lift their consciousness. If, if that happened, it would be a complete change. But that's toward the end of the cycle. Ten-year-olds don't want to do that. But we do, and we can, and we are. Well, good morning again. I've been reading recently a lot of about Albert Einstein, and he had a wonderful explanation of one of his very cosmic, elusive theories. He said, when you're courting a very nice girl, one hour seems like a second. When you're sitting on hot cinders, one second seems like an hour. That's the theory of relativity. And I thought, I could get that. But what he's saying, and echoing what Jyotish has been saying, is that it's all about our perspective. Whether something seems very good, something very bad, long, short, whatever, it's all about our perspective. And when we understand that we can change our perspective. It is not a fixed thing. Then we begin to understand that the process of personal transformation and global transformation can take place. And there was another wonderful quote. Uh, It's a little off point, but I just can't help but sharing it from Einstein. He said people were always kind of criticizing him because he didn't care at all about what he wore, what he looked like. And he said, when someone asked him about this, he said, when you can understand that all matter is nothing that is continually expanding to become something, then wearing plaids and stripes are easy. (laughs) So I loved it because it just shows when we get our consciousness big enough, all the details and the pettiness of this world just are not that important. And when we understand that the most effective tool for personal transformation 
is through meditation, then we can just take off. And yes, we'll have comings and goings with our meditation. We'll have periods of intensity. We'll have periods where it just seems unattainable. It doesn't matter. You, As Jotish was quoting Master, God doesn't care about what we don't do. He cares about our indifference. And as long as we start keep saying, I want this, I'm not doing my best right now, I know, let's be honest, you and me and God, but I want this. As long as our intention is there, that personal transformation continues. And it's the most beautiful thing living in community because you see it's like every one of us is a living example of these principles. You see people who have gone through remarkable tests, things that would just level people to the ground and they're just standing there dealing with them with poise and equanimity. You see people growing over the years through their service, through their sadhana, and in humility. I think for me one of the greatest things that I love about community is it's not the shining stars that impress you the most. It's the little light reflecting off a dewdrop. And just the simple humility of people doing what's in front of them that is just so beautiful to behold. So when we begin thinking about personal transformation, I'm going to talk about two things now, the process and different aspects of personal transformation and then of global transformation and how one leads very directly to the other. In the autobiography of a yogi, that great, great book, that living consciousness with which Master blessed people all over the world, Sri Teshwar says, thoughts are not individually but universally rooted. And so when we begin thinking about personal transformation, what this means is we think we have our own thoughts. We think I'm deciding to do this and I'm going to do that. But really all we're doing is tuning into different levels of universal thought, be they Satya Yuga reflective or Kali Yuga reflective. We are not creating our thoughts. We are not creating our habit patterns. We are simply reflecting different stages of consciousness to which we are tuning depending on the level of our own energy. It's really that simple. And so when we really begin this deep desire for personal transformation and we begin tuning in to the guru, looking at his eyes, feeling his eyes within you, feeling his, li- his eyes just surrounding you, calling to him, we begin identifying not with our lower self but with our universal self, with our higher self. And when we have those moments it's it's a remarkable experience, and it becomes, again, living in community. You see your friends, your guru bhais, the people that you've been in the trenches with helping to build master's work, and you see them becoming more and more transparent in their limited self and more and more illumined 
in their higher self. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And so we begin to accept the fact that I'm not just my limitations. I'm not my chronic habit patterns of thought. And we begin to accept there's more, there's more to me than meets the eye. And that's the God's presence within us. We've just published, I'm going to do a little show and tell. We've just published, uh, Crystal Clarity Publishers, a wonderful book, the, the last or the latest in the Wisdom of Yogananda series. It's the humor of Paramahansa Yogananda. And now let us praise humble people, my dear friend and guru Bayanandi, who has created all of these books, and her name does not appear on any of them. But just remarkable accomplishment. But in, in this book, Master tells a story, and, and they're all delightful. But in this one particular story about the lion who thought he was a sheep, some of you know it, some of you don't, but Master tells the story that there was this female lioness. She was heavy with about to bear a little cub, but she was very hungry, and she saw a flock of sheep in a nearby meadow. So she was so hungry, she just leaped into the meadow and grabbed one of the sheep and carried it away to feed herself. But in this process... She gave birth to the little lion cub, and there it was left, right among the sheep. And the sheep kind of gathered around, and there was this little lion, and being kind of beneficent, benign creatures, the sheep adopted this little cub. And they took care of it, and they raised it like a little sheep, and they taught this lion how to eat grass, and how to frolic in the meadow, and how to bleat and baa. And the lion just thought this was great. He thought this is who he was. And he grew up, the years went by, and finally he was a full-grown male lion with the full mane and muscles and huge teeth, and he was still pretending he was this little sheep. And one day, another male lion came onto this clearing and saw this delicious-looking flock of sheep, and it began chasing them. But he was totally baffled because leading this flock of sheep was this big male lion. And finally, the, uh, the second one came and he caught him and he pinned him down. And the, the, the lion sheep said, oh, please don't kill me. I'm just a helpless little sheep. And the male lion said, what are you talking about? You are a lion, the king of the jungle. He said, no, no, I'm just a little sheep. And, and the, li- the second lion dragged him to a nearby pond, a lake. And he said, look. Your reflection is the same as my reflection. And he looked. He didn't look like all the other little sheep. And then he said, now roar. And all that would come out with is a little bah, bah. And he said, no, roar. And little by little, finally he gained his voice and he was able to roar. Well, Master said, I mean, I think you get the analogy. <laughs> That's what we are. We think we're these little bitty helpless, harmless ineffective sheep, but we're lions. And I just, I have to read you one paragraph. This is Master's words, how he concludes this story. And just feel like Master is saying this to you right now. These spiritual teachings are the new lion that will drag you to the crystal pool of meditation and give you such a hard shaking that you will open the closed eyes of your wisdom and behold yourself as a lion of divinity, 
made in the image of the cosmic lion, those of you who strive continuously will forget your mortal fears of weakness, failure, and death, and will learn to roar with the power of almighty immortality. So, he wasn't... (laughs) I don't know who did that, but thanks. It's not one of the sheep. So, to accept who we really are and to cast aside the limitations. But meditation, it's not just a mental thing, as Jyotish was saying. Fifty years ago, when our guru was teaching in America, you know, also just to mention, uh, in 2020 will be the 100th anniversary of Master coming to America and beginning his mission. and But when he began teaching, he made statements that science is just catching up with. He said, meditation and particularly Kriya Yoga changes the molecular structure of the brain. And everyone said, oh, what a nice man from India. You know, they have these fanciful ideas. But now all the latest neuro, neurological research is saying, hey, The brain is so malleable, it's so plastic, it can change. And depending on where we direct our energy, those parts of the brain become activated. If we direct it to the prefrontal lobe, as we do in meditation, our higher consciousness, our super consciousness gets activated. And that's things like positive thinking, solution-oriented, ability to make decisions, confidence, strength, overcoming fear and anxiety, and compassion. All of these things are functions of the higher uh, developed parts of our brain. And interestingly, I just read a study that said people who live their lives in positions of power dominance over others, the empathy part of their brain diminishes. That explains a lot. But meditation, we're activating these things. And so it isn't that we have to keep struggling and struggling. We are changing the way, the lenses through which we see the world through meditation. And everything Master said is coming to pass. So many of these things he said. But then meditation also helps us to acquire attitudes and attributes in our daily life that are transformative. And there are so many, but let's focus. I'll call them the three C's. The first one is calmness. Second one is concentration. And the third one is condensation of experience. And now let's talk about them each individually. So the first one, calmness. Meditation helps us to still the reactive process. So something happens, and most people would go, oh, my God, this is terrible. The deep yogic practitioner, the deep meditator, just calmly looks at it and adjusts. I've shared with you the story of when we were driving up to Lake Tahoe many years ago with Swami. Uh, He was driving, and we were going up to go skiing. If you can 
many of you never saw Swami at that stage of his life, but he loved to ski. And so we were driving up there and it started to snow. And the snow was coming down harder and harder. And then they started flashing signs, stop and put on chains. So Swami hit the brakes of the car, but the tires were bald and he didn't know it. And the car started going into a tailspin and there were cars. It was on a four-lane highway. The cars were coming the other way and we were spinning and spinning. And I was in the back seat and there was another woman sitting next to me who was, had not yet perfected calmness. And she started screaming and she said, Swami! like that. And then the car crashed into a Greyhound bus that was parked along the side of the road. And the front of the car, the car was totaled, but no one was hurt. We, we see this happen more than a little with our devotees in our lives. <clears throat> but so the car crashed and this woman was screaming, Swami! And Swami stopped, turned around and he said, what? <laughs> but I have seen that not only in the example of our life here at Ananda, but there's a beautiful story from the life of Lahiri Mahashaya, which I find so instructive. There's a wonderful biography of him that's drawn from his own diaries that's been published in India and is available on Amazon as well. But in this story of the life of Lahiri Mahashaya, we know that he had two sons. They're mentioned in autobiography. But he also had three daughters, which are not referred to. And one of the daughters was married and living in her, her husband's family home. And she became very, very ill, critically ill. And Lahiri's wife, who is talked about in autobiography, came to him and said, our daughter is dying. We must do something. And he said, yes. Take this herb and mix it in this oil and give it to her by drops in her mouth. And so the wife prepared this and then went to um, the home. But the husband's parents were very opposed to Indian medicine. They only went with Western medicine. So she didn't know how to intrude this. And so she didn't do what Lahiri said and the daughter died. And the next day... Lahiri would have what he called his Gita satsangs every evening on his porch in Benares. And the devotees were gathering and they said, Oh, Master, we don't have to have a satsang tonight. You must be so upset. And he said, No, 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 we can have our satsang. And they said, Well, we're too upset by what has happened. We can't absorb what you want to tell us. And then they were so puzzled and they said, Master, aren't you affected by the death of your daughter? I mean, if we're so upset, and it wasn't even our daughter, what about you? And he said, think of it this way. He said, I have trained my consciousness that whatever happens in life does not leave a deep impression. He said, your minds are like taking a marble block and putting it on wet sand. If you give it a big blow, it leaves an impression. My mind is like a marble block, placing it on another marble block. If you give it a deep blow, it feels the blow, but it doesn't leave an impression. So this is the state of deep calmness that whatever happens in our life, we're able to deal with it. Not that we don't, it's not indifference. People often ask that question. Do you just become blasé? Do you don't care? No, you feel things. And the great ones feel things much more than we do. I remember once 
there was a man living at Ananda who Swami had given a great deal of energy to, but he decided to leave Ananda. And um, Swami told us, I cried all night because I knew the suffering he would have after that. And so these the high souls feel these things, but it doesn't leave a residual impact. That's the fruit of the attribute of calmness that comes through meditation. Another one is concentration. And of course we think, all right, I concentrate when I meditate and then that comes over into what I do. But it goes deeper than that. Concentration in such a way that you're drawing divine guidance all the time. You're asking the infinite one to give you the answers that you need in your life. And so concentration just isn't about what we can do. It's the ability to get out of the way so that God can show us what to do, to be so focused. You know, when Ananda Moimashi was illiterate, and, and great sages would come to her from all over India, and they would ask her to, uh, they would ask her questions, and she would answer their questions with great profundity. And then if they would ask her to sign her name, she didn't know how to write, so she'd put a little dot. That's all she would do. But that's what, in that concentration, we'd become a little dot. And then even beyond that dot, we'd become nothing. And so concentration leads to becoming everything. But it also leads to success in daily life. Master told a story that happened in the 1920s, so financial realities were different than they are now. But someone came up to him, one of his students, who was a successful businessman, and said, this is the way Master said it, you're pretty good as a spiritual teacher, but... At business, you would fail. And Master said, do you think the principles that bring success in the spiritual life are any different than the principles that bring success in the world of business and finance? And Master said, in two weeks, I, using the power of God, I'm going to raise $5,000 for you. This was in the 1920s, so I didn't do the uh, equation of what that would be today, but it would be more than $5,000. So the man said, okay, I'd like to see this. So Master said he meditated, he concentrated, he asked for inner guidance. He said, Lord, show me how to prove to this man your power applies on all levels. And as he sat there in meditation, he started seeing houses, lots of different little houses. And he thought, okay, this is the guidance. And then he got, the next day, he got the newspaper and he looked in the real estate column and he saw all these houses. And he said to his friend, buy these houses. And the man said, you're crazy. The market's down. He said, buy these houses. Do you want to go along with this experiment or not? And the man said, all right. So he bought them. In two weeks, there was a boom in the real estate market, and the man made his $5,000 and more in those two weeks. So just to show that the power of concentration, the real effectiveness is if we can draw it in everything we do, in creating a beautiful garden, in cooking a dish, in deciding business transactions, in working with other people, in medical diagnoses, all of these things. The concentrated mind opened up to the power of God. 
is an unbeatable formula for success in daily life. And it comes through the transforming power of meditation. And then the last one, condensation of experience. You know, we go through life and we knock, we stub our toes and we dent our fenders and we drop our glass of water and it shatters and we never get the teachings, the principle, the lesson behind it all. Through meditation, Master says that we can glean from a simple little experience the lesson of a lifetime. It would take other people a lifetime to learn. It's very important, that principle. So we don't have to go through all of the getting riches and getting, gaining, spending your whole life acquiring a fortune and then in the end realizing it wasn't worth, it, worth much anyway. It didn't have any meaning anyway. We can see it in a glance. That's the transforming power of condensation of experience. There's a story that Swami told us about a young monk who was <clears throat> a disciple of Sri Yukteswar. He was a wonderful, radiant, devoted monk. But there was just a little bit of a desire left to have a marriage. And Sri Yukteswar saw that and he knew that it's not what the man wanted, the monk wanted. It wasn't his destiny, but it troubled him. And one day Sri Yukteswar said, come with me. And they went to the train station. They got on the train. They were, and the man had no idea what was going on, the monk. And the, Sri Yukteswar said, sit in that chair by the window. He did so. And then in the train station, just parallel on the next track was another train. And this young monk looked out the window and seated in the, in the other train just opposite him was a beautiful young woman. And he just glanced at her. And in that glance... All his desires were fulfilled. Condensation of experience. He didn't need to go through that whole lifetime. And that's how we are transformed. We, we get accelerated evolution. Honestly. You watch people living. I've heard many Ananda devotees say that. I feel like I've had five lifetimes in this one lifetime. And it's true. It isn't just a false perception. It's because it's the condensation of experience. Now, these are all ways that for personal transformation for meditation. But what about global transformation as a result of meditation? There's a wonderful quote on our web, uh, the web page, Be the Change, that has wonderful quotes from different spiritual leaders. But there's one from one of my heroes, the Dalai Lama. And he says, if we want to change consciousness, we must have a plan. But no plan will have any effect if it doesn't incorporate meditation. It's very, very important. He also said, if we would teach every eight-year-old child in the world meditation, war would cease in a generation. These are powerful thoughts. And so for global transformation, we under, need to understand, first, the power of one. As we develop these attributes and these understandings in ourself in meditation, we become 
very spiritually powerful and magnetic, not in the sense of over other people, not in the sense of telling people what to do or people bring, uh, waving a fan over you, but in the sense that we have an impact more than we realize on the world around us. Sri Yukteswar said that the deeper the re- self-realization of a person the greater the impact they have, the greater the effect they have on the world around them, and the less they are affected by the world. So the power of one, one person deeply rooted in this transformative process has an incredible effect on the world around him. Another little bit of show and tell, Crystal Clarity Publishers just has come out with a reissue of a book called Stories of Yogananda's Youth. It formerly was called Stories of Mukunda. Swamiji wrote this, gathered these stories from Master. It's just come out. It's beautiful, beautiful illustrations, beautiful cover. I've so enjoyed reading it. But in it, this book, there's a story that I don't think I'd heard before of when Master, you know, his family moved a lot in his childhood and youth because of his father's job. He was worked for the railway as an executive. And in one of the cities they moved to, all the other boys there were coarse and crude, and he just couldn't relate to them at all. And so he would just meditate, and he would go off and sit— in one particular day, he would sit. He was sitting all day long in the hot sun, meditating, and then and he he totally became absorbed in God. He was about twelve at the time, and then as he was leaving, this gang of boys started coming out of him. About fifty of them, and they just circled him and they said, "You think you're better than we are? We are going to kill you." And Master was, you know, he was not, he was a man, a child, a soul, an avatar of spiritual power. He looked around, he got his back against a tree, and he said, you are 50, I am one. Surely you can kill me, but I guarantee you, I will kill the first one who approaches me. And his power was so great that they all began to tremble. And the leader of the pack said, oh, uh, we don't want to kill you. Uh, uh, Let's be friends. And Yogananda said, if friends you want to be, friends we shall be. And from then on, those boys followed him, and he changed their consciousness, the power of one. Then there's the power of one percent. And some of you have heard this, but the the transcendental meditators, they did experiments where they would take a group of meditators to a certain area. They did it, I believe, in Rhode Island that has a small population. They just um, represented 1% of the population. But that 1% meditating daily, regularly, things began to change. The crime rate started going down. Violent crimes went down. The visits, accidents and visits to the emergency room began going down. Even the, the economics of the state began picking up. Even the weather improved. The power of 1%. Now, if we can start this global movement of be the change, we can – it's not in, inconceivable that we could have 1% of the world's population if people join us from all over. And so the power of one, the power of 
And then finally, again, returning back to our old friend Albert Einstein, he said, the problems that we face cannot be solved on the level of thinking on which they are created. So the problems we see around us, we, we can't solve them on that same level of thinking. We have to transform our consciousness. We have to be part of joining together in connectedness with the higher power and with others who also are feeling a connection with the higher power. doesn't matter religion. doesn't matter race. doesn't matter nationality. It's that connectedness that is the end, which comes from a higher level of consciousness than divisiveness. It's acceptance that comes from a higher level of consciousness than judgment. It's that universal love and brotherhood and sisterhood that comes from a higher level of violence and hatred. And these are the only solution. And meditation, each of us, I remember, I don't want to embarrass her, but many, many years ago, my friend Sadna Devi told me, I've been gifted with the grace that meditation has always been relatively easy for me from when I first started. I know this isn't true for everyone. And so when I meditate, I meditate for those who meditation is difficult. That's a wonderful thought. And so when we meditate, don't just meditate for your own liberation. Meditate for the others who are just coming onto the path. Meditate for those who haven't even heard about the path. Meditate for those yet to be born. You know, when Master gave that Beverly Hill Garden Party's talk, Beverly Hills Garden Party talk, he was with full vigor saying, youths go north, south, east, and west to build this movement. And in that group of several hundred people there, who heard? One man heard. Swami Kriyananda heard. But we all heard. We weren't yet incarnated, but we heard, our souls heard that call from the astral world. And we have come with a purpose, and that purpose is helping global transformation, nothing less. That's why Master came. All the things he did, he foresaw what the state we're in now and worse to come. But the power of one, the power of 1%, the power of connectedness with the higher power, all of these things will transform the consciousness of the planet. And it's through the power of meditation, but more, it's through the grace of the guru which enlivens our efforts. And if we can remember that, we can live a life that is the one that Master chose for us, and we will live it well. So let's do it together with God and Guru, with our full intention, and let's see the power that comes to transform our world.